Hello, and welcome to Out West, the official podcast of the Western Governors Association, a bipartisan organization representing the governors of the 22 westernmost states and territories. I'm Jim Ogsbury, Executive Director of WGA. Today's episode will be the first in a series about Oregon Governor Kate Brown's initiative to create an electric vehicles roadmap for the West. As the current chair of WGA, Governor Brown is using her electric vehicles initiative to promote the planning, siting, and coordination of electric vehicle infrastructure in the West. Each episode of this series will examine various aspects of the initiative in depth. Consumer ownership of electric vehicles, or EVs, is expanding across the West, but rural citizens can face particular challenges with the ownership and operation of EVs. In response, rural electric cooperatives, charging station operators, and vehicle manufacturers are identifying innovative solutions to promote the accessibility of EVs within rural communities. WGA policy advisor Kevin Moss spoke with two experts in this area, Ali Sagoon, the Member Relations Supervisor at the Gunnison County Electric Association, and Roger Hoy, the Director of the Nebraska Tractor Test Laboratory, about challenges to and opportunities for broader adoption of electric vehicles in rural areas and in rural industries, such as farming and ranching. Hello, everyone. Our first uh, podcast interview for this Electric Vehicles Roadmap uh, episode is with Ali Sagoon. She is the Member Relations Supervisor for the Gunnison County Electric Association here in Colorado. And Ali, I was just hoping that you could start by just giving a short interview of the Gunnison County Electric Association, your service ter- territory, and any sort of other uh, geographic issues that you think um, our listeners would appreciate. Sure. So Gunnison County Electric serves all of the members in the rural parts of Gunnison, Colorado, as well as Crested Butte and on down to Hinsdale County, which includes Lake City. Uh, we have about 11,000 meters on our service territory and about 8,500 different members. Um, our territory is quite rural. Um, population of the greater uh, Gunnison area is about 16,000 people. Um, so lots of wide open spaces and uh, we have over uh, 1,000 miles of line that serve our 11,000 meters that we have on our service territory. Very, uh, very rural sounding indeed. And then and since this, you know, conversation is is principally one about electric vehicles, I was just hoping you could, you know, talk a little bit about some of the the rural specific issues that that GCEA has um, has encountered with electric vehicles. I think that, you know, in the West sort of writ large, we've, you know, people are familiar with seeing EVs in urban areas, but um, still aren't seeing them that much in rural areas. So was hoping that you could sort of give the electric utility uh, perspective on what some of those rural challenges are with electric vehicles. Sure. So our uh, philosophy has been kind of that adage of if you build it, they will come. Um, currently, there are only about 60 registered electric vehicles in our service territory. So we don't have a lot of electric vehicles yet, but we feel like installing the infrastructure is the first step and helping people feel comfortable in purchasing an electric vehicle. Uh, We have had challenges along the way. Um, Our cell service is not consistent throughout our territory. There are blips here and there where there is no cell service, and that makes it difficult for us to install a networked charging station, um, as well as some of the electric infrastructure issues that prevent us from 
installing a level two or a level three DC fast charger in our area. But having said that, we have installed 12 electric vehicle charging stations in our area, um, some in the bigger parts of our territory in Crested Butte um, and down in Lake City, as well as more of the rural parts of our service territory as well. Our, our approach has been to install charging stations where there are long dwell times. So whether it's a recreational um, location like a trailhead or the lake, we, we feel like that's a draw for people to come into our area to have recreation opportunities, but also be able to charge where they recharge. Um, but uh, we, we certainly have had our, our list of challenges along the way, but we've been able to creatively navigate through those and, and install those 12 charging stations. That's great to hear. And you, you mentioned that um, a handful of those charging stations were of the level three or direct current fast charger variety. And in case listeners aren't aware, that's sort of the highest level of EV charging that can give drivers a, the most efficient and quick charge and um, can often pull a lot of electricity at once. And so were there, did you ever have to make any kind of local infrastructure upgrades to support those DCFC installations? Fortunately, no, we were able to be creative in our site locations, um, finding those locations that did have adequate cell service as well as the three phase electric infrastructure that we needed to be able to install the DC fast charger. Um, in Lake City in particular, there were a few different locations that we identified based on our electric infrastructure, that three phase power. Um, but two of them did not have the good cell service that we were looking for. So this, the location that we chose was the one that had the best cell service and the best infrastructure. And it was a location that was a recreation hotspot. It was a climbing ice wall location. So we felt like that was a good spot to be able to put a fast charger. And then just on the, the cell phone service issue, um, oftentimes a lot of EV chargers the, of the public variety, uh, drivers will use a, essentially an app on their phone um, to pay for their charge. And so there isn't cell phone service. Um, folks might have to use a credit card, but it can just kind of generally complicate uh, the payment systems for that infrastructure. And again, obviously in the rural West, there are a lot of areas without uh, reliable cell phone coverage. Um, so Ali, my next question is a, is a two-part question just about whether uh, GCEA has used any uh, state or federal funds uh, related to your work with EVs. And um, if you just have any kind of general recommendations for other rural utilities or electric cooperatives that are uh, pursuing public funding for uh, EV infrastructure investments. Yes, um, since 2015, when we installed our first EV charging station, we have been taking advantage of the Charge Ahead Colorado grant that is offered through the Colorado Energy Office. There are three grant rounds that are offered each year and each grant round we've been able to take advantage of some of those funds that are available. So the state has been very supportive in providing funding for our EV charging station projects. Uh, we also received support from our local entities from the towns that the charging stations are installed. We've gotten some financial support from the towns and the counties as well as our wholesale power supplier, Tri-State Generation and Transmission. That's great to hear. And I think your, your point is a wise one in that a lot of these EV charging installations can be sort of an all hands approach between private industry, the local utilities, state and local government. It's often um, a lot of different pots of funding to 
to get these investments in the ground, particularly in rural areas where they're um, maybe less of a business case, given the, the fewer number of EV drivers currently. And that would be my advice is to form partnerships with local governments, other businesses, other entities that have strategic initiatives that align with your own. Um, an example from our uh, experience was the town of Crested Butte initiated their climate action plan just over a year ago. And in that plan, it included plans for public EV charging, as well as encouraging um, energy efficiency throughout the valley. So their uh, strategic initiative of their climate action plan lined up with our goals of in installing more EV chargers. So we worked together on two projects there and applied for uh, the state funding. And so I want to follow up on one point you made earlier, which is just that, you know, there aren't necessarily a ton of EV drivers in, in rural Colorado or within your service territory. And I think, you know, one big issue with the development of the electric vehicle sector is that, you know, people in a rural area might not really ever see someone driving an EV and may not um, consider it as an option for their lifestyle. And so um, I found it really interesting when I was you know, researching Gunnison County Electric Association and saw that you all have an EV test drive, test drive program. Um, and so could you go into, you know, why you decided to launch that program, how your members have found value in it and sort of, you know, what effect it's had on um, interest of for electric vehicles within uh, your communities? Yes, definitely. This is probably my favorite part of my job. <laughs> um, I oversee the EV loaner program or test drive program. This program was actually started about four years ago. Our CEO, Mike McBride, was able to convince our board to buy an electric vehicle to use for member education. And so we started with a 2015 Nissan Leaf and also purchased a 2016 Chevy Spark. And those were our original loaner program vehicles. But we were having a challenge in that the range on those vehicles was less than 100 miles. And in our service territory, that could not get you up and down the valley on one charge. And especially in the winter time, when the battery efficiency is reduced, it made it sort of challenging for our members to really enjoy their EV experience. So in 2019, we took our fleet vehicle, the, we have a 2018 Chevy Bolt, and we turned that into our loaner vehicle. And so that vehicle is available now for our members to take a week at a time with unlimited miles. They're allowed to go outside of our service territory. And I encourage them to navigate what it's like to have a everyday lifestyle with the electric vehicle, as well as a road trip experience. So I work with them on how to charge the vehicle when they're out of town, how to find charging station locations and how long to expect to charge. And the feedback has been phenomenal. This program has been very popular. And even during COVID, I had the car fully booked the entire year of 2020. Um, on top of that, in 2019, we purchased a Tesla Model 3, and we've really enjoyed using that in ride-and-drive events. We've taken it to our, our local Gunnison car show and showed it off alongside classic cars. We had our Tesla and our Chevy Bolt, and were able to share the benefits of driving electric vehicles. So the program's been extremely popular, and we've had at least three or four people purchase an electric vehicle because of their experience with the program. That's really interesting and, and great to hear that there's been so much demand. I think that um, oftentimes people in, in a rural community are, you know, they can experience range anxiety like a lot of prospective EV drivers, but not necessarily on a 
in a long road trip sense, but more on just their, you know, day-to-day life and having to drive um, much further distances on average than an urban uh, consumer. So it feels like this sort of program is, um, has the potential to be really useful in sort of assuaging some of those concerns that rural folks may have about an EV and, you know, getting stranded in the middle of nowhere, being being unable to charge. Absolutely. So I want to follow up a little bit on EVs in rural areas and and maybe some coming innovations. I think that uh, electric pickup trucks are starting to uh, create a lot of buzz. There were, you know, there have been Super Bowl commercials about them and a lot of uh, companies are launching pickup trucks in 2021 or 2022. Um, so have any of your members expressed interest or purchased an electric pickup truck or, you know, talked about how those could apply to a rural lifestyle? Definitely. Um, I think the one of the number one comments I get from the EV loaner program is I loved how fun it was to drive, but there's not enough room for all my stuff. <laughs> so whether it's um, being able to, to support all their gear or have enough room for their family to ride in the vehicle, it just seems like some of the smaller EVs are just not big enough for all for the lifestyle that our members have here. So yes, they are very interested in electric trucks and the electric SUVs. I feel like when electric trucks become more of the norm and, if, and when the price points come down, I think that that will be a very viable option for our service territory. I think, you know, once electric vehicles can sort of get to that use case, that's really popular in America where we tend to like bigger cars is when um, there could be a little bit of an inflection point in, you know, how many vehicles are purchased and where they're getting purchased and, and things of that nature. My final question is just, you know, for other states or utilities that um, are active in, in the rural West, what sort of, what recommendations would you offer to them um, if they're hoping to expand either EV awareness or charging infrastructure investments um, within the, the communities that they serve? I would say my advice would be if you're interested in expanding the EV sector in your service territory, I would I would suggest to be the leader in that EV space. And that's sort of been our motto at Gunnison County Electric is to lead the charge, to lead the way and be the example. Um, show how fun it is to drive an electric vehicle, show how easy it is to charge by providing uh, EV charging stations equally spaced throughout your service territory. Try to be thoughtful about all of the ways that will make it easier for people to adopt an electric vehicle into their lifestyle. Electrify your fleet, that's another great way to be the example. And I would also say, educate yourself on all of the funding that's available, tax credits, tax incentives that are available. Share that information with the people in your territory to help them get over all of those hurdles, whether it's a financial hurdle, whether it's having the right make a model that will fit their lifestyle, having enough charging opportunities for them to feel like they don't have to have range anxiety. All of those pieces play into EV adoption and making it easy for people to want to buy EV. Allie, that's a lot of really good advice. And thank you so much for your time and, and leadership in this space. And at this point, we're going to turn to our next conversation. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Roger Hoy, director of the Nebraska Tractor uh, Testing Facility. Roger, thank you for joining us today. I think this sort of angle of electric vehicles in the the agriculture sector is one that's of of big interest to to Western governors and WGA. We obviously have a lot of um, big wide open spaces and important agricultural communities in the West. And so I think 
getting some of your perspectives is going to be really valuable, Roger. Um, can you just give a short overview of the facility itself and um, what sort of research or testing it's done on any sort of electric farming equipment? Well, the, the tractor test lab was started uh, due to a Nebraska law passed back in 1919 uh, that uh, basically stated if you wanted to sell a tractor in Nebraska, you had to bring a, a sample of that model to the University of Nebraska and have it tested to prove that it actually performed as advertised. And, uh, you know, I think the Originally, it was to get the fly-by-night early manufacturers out of business, but uh, what sort of happening was the reputable manufacturers started using our performance data on their tractors in their marketing programs. And so uh, we've been we've been around now for a little over a hundred years testing tractors. Uh, so we don't do any reliability or durability work. It's just how much power can the tractor produce. And, how much fuel is uh, is consumed or energy is consumed during that work. On electric, we have not done any official tractor testing on electric tractors yet. But we have done some unofficial work with a company called Soltrack, it's located out in California. And uh, they, they, a year or two ago, brought uh, two different electric models to the lab and we, we did some evaluation work for them. Uh, they have they have a lot of potential in my opinion. They were directed I think a little more to the orchard and vineyard markets in California, but uh, uh, I, I sort of went from being a skeptic to being kind of a believer in this. Uh, you know, during that week they were here and we were seeing what they could do. Yeah, you, the, the word you used that stood out to me is is potential. So could you give, you know, our listeners a short overview of your perspective on where sort of the status of electric, either electric tractors or electric farming equipment is in general, whether it's in a, a pre-market stage or just entering market ready stage. What do you what do you think about that? One thing about a tractor that sort of differentiates it from an on-road vehicle is there's there's not really a lot of opportunity for any kind of regenerative braking. In fact, you know, there's a lot of farmers that'll buy a new tractor and maybe only have to touch the brakes, uh, you know, once or twice a year and operating it. Um, and that's mainly because tractors are often pulling ground engaging implements. So there really isn't a lot of energy to recover when you're going downhill. Um, so I think an awful lot of the technology is in place now. Uh, where I see the biggest challenge is being able to store enough electrical energy on the tractor for a full day's use. So you know, I think these niche market applications are going to be uh, sort of like what Soltrack's doing, is where we're going to see them start. And then you know, my hope would be as we get better power density with batteries, we would see them used more routinely. You know, right now the expectation for diesel fuel, at least, is that the tractor fuel tank ought to be large enough to accommodate, you know, 12 hours or so of running at a time. Uh, you know, the power density is just not quite there yet for the, uh, you know, row crop uh, farming kind of applications. And I think as the battery technology continues to evolve, um, you know, that'll be, I think, the key to leading into fully electric farm tractors across the board. The cost of fuel consumption, I think, 
that's one issue that WJ has thought about is just potentially the, you know, the more generally relative prices of electricity versus diesel or, or gasoline and just the ability of a farmer or a rancher to be have more certainty, you know, with their budget for a year of, you know, what that electricity is going to cost versus some other uh, sort of fuel. So could you um, talk about some of the other kind of primary factors that a farmer or a grower might consider when um, potentially making the switch to an electric tractor? Well, a farmer is sort of a, a businessman. Maybe some of them are even large businessmen. But what's unique about being a producer is you have no control over your price. The market sets the price for a bushel of corn or a head of, head of beef or whatever. Uh, so really all the farmer gets to control are the input costs. So from a farming perspective, if you can demonstrate that electric power works and it's a cheaper alternative to uh, uh, you know, diesel fuel or something like that that's commonly used today, uh, farmers will adopt that. Definitely. I think that you know, one of the main business decisions that our listeners might be curious about is just given the early stage of the market with some of these electric tractors, you know, what it sort of what is the price comparison to a diesel one that um, a farmer might evaluate, or is it even possible to make those, you know, one-to-one comparisons yet considering how nascent the industry is? I think it would be hard to compare. Uh, and I, I honestly don't know what electric tractor pricing is. Uh, you know, typically the conventional way of pricing the tractor is not so much on how big it is, but on how much power it can deliver. So it's a, it's a price per horsepower that's available. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that model changes with electrics or it's incorporated somehow into that. But, uh, you know, that, that would really be up, I think, for the manufacturers to be able to go to a customer and say, look, we can show you... Uh, this tractor performs adequately for your needs, maybe based on some Nebraska tractor test data that gets collected. And, you know, here's a cost comparison of an electric tractor, you know, a total cost comparison, maybe not just purchase price, but, you know, purchase price and operating uh, operating cost over, a, you know, a five-year or ten-year type horizon. Some of WJ's electric vehicles work has gotten into the the fleet space. And so I think a lot of those fleet operators make sort of similar total cost of ownership types of projections. And even though that, you know, initial sticker price might be quite a bit higher, there might be some savings if you look at a, you know, five, 10 or 15 year time frame. So it'll be really interesting to see how that sort of analysis develops with the electric tractor industry. So Roger, you, you mentioned this earlier um, in relation to vineyards and seeing that as a possible uh, early use case for electric tractors. And so a lot of WGA's um, work in the agriculture space just sort of tries to sort of promote the fact that a lot of um, Western agricultural producers are focused in the, the specialty crop sector. So not necessarily growing, you know, big plots of corn or wheat or, you know, crops that you may see, see grown in the Midwest, but, you know, more niche uh, crops and markets. And so do you see any opportunities for some of those smaller electric tractors that you described to uh, service those more specialty-oriented crops? Well, I, I think some of those crops are an excellent place to start because the, uh, 
the requirements of the tractor are different from row cropping. You know, you may be pulling rolling trailers. You may be doing, uh, you know, some spraying of, uh, of fruit or, or, or grapes. But it seems like those would be very appropriate for a tractor that maybe is not operated 12 hours a day. Maybe it's two or three hours at a time. Uh, you know, one of the Soltrack models that came out was very interesting because it had a fixed battery pack mounted on the tractor. But it also had three implement locations in front, behind, and underneath, and any of those implement locations could carry additional batteries for uh, longer-term use. You know, so they're already getting there, I think, to the time demand. Uh, you know, so when we, when we improve on the... Uh, you know, battery capacity and, of course, more improvements in, uh, in length of time to charge, uh, all of those are, are going to drive this into, you know, more widespread use. But it's a good place, I think, for the industry to get their feet wet with electric vehicles and for, uh, you know, consumers to start to come and, uh, and appreciate the value and create market demand. Well, I, I may need to get in touch with some of the, the grower cooperatives on the, the western slope of Colorado and see if uh, any of their members are using electric tractors on the vineyards or uh, peach farms out there. Because I think to your point, there are some interesting use cases and that could be a sort of a way for those electric tractors to get a, a toehold into the market. So it'll be really great to see uh, and interesting to see innovations there. So, um, Roger, my next question is just, um, you know, what... What barriers do you see with, you know, the, the growing use of electric tractors and, and farm equipment? And, you know, what, what will it take, in your opinion, to, you know, help those technologies reach more of a, a mainstream usage? I, I guess it's sort of in two areas. Um, you know, you, you mentioned innovation. And, and first of all, uh, you know, it's not really like we all sit down like Edison did and invent a light bulb one day. You know, these are a number of small innovations all put together that, that meant a big change. You know, so the, the battery technology is certainly one. Uh, I, I have some concerns maybe about the ability of the existing electrical infrastructure to support all the charging between, uh, you know, electric tractors, electric vehicles, trucks, cars, and so on. Uh, you know, so I, you know, my perception is there has to be development in those areas as well, because essentially we're talking about replacing a lot of, uh, you know, point use of fossil fuels with more centralized production of electricity and distributing that electricity where it needs to go in the, in the right amount. I suspect that there is some basic infrastructure that uh, is going to have to be looked at over the next, uh, you know, next period of time to be able to support what ultimately could be used. For sure. Yeah, WJ has been, you know, we've been looking at part of the electric vehicles infrastructure issue in a, a medium and heavy duty charging sector lens at times. And I think that there are a lot of analogous challenges with local distribution networks that could be applied to to farming equipment and you know a number of growers in a particular area all you know potentially charging their tractors overnight and that's obviously gonna um, have a lot of strain on the grid and require some pretty close collaboration with 
that local electric utility and, and certainly harkens back to some of the points that Allie was making um, on behalf of Gunnison County Electric Association. So Roger, I just have one final question for you and it is changing gears a little bit, but one big uh, area of interest for WGA and Western governors in general within the agriculture sector is just the, the workforce issue. And so I'm wondering if you know, you're seeing any of these innovations in, in agricultural equipment, whether electric vehicle oriented or otherwise, and if that's helping generate uh, interest from students um, or just you know, not even students, but just young people in general um, in pursuing careers in, in agriculture. Well, yeah, we certainly see a lot of that. And, you know, one of the subjects we've not really talked about today is automation. Uh, you know, we have driverless cars, so why not driverless agricultural machines at some point? And that's, that's kind of an interesting thing because, the, you know, the trend over the last century has been to reduce labor needs on the farm. So we've had big power growth in combines and tractors and things like that, so that one person can farm more ground. You know, today one guy might be doing 2,000 acres, and even 50 years ago it might have been 160 or 320 acres. But when you take the driver off of the machine, then you don't necessarily have to be so big anymore, and it could be sworn to small machines, and they could be electric. Uh, you know, I, I think all this can relate and, and sort of judge how farming uh, develops in this rest of this century. But uh, there's an awful lot of student interest in these high technology type areas. You know, most of my students are sort of like I was. They're farm kids that like math and science, but they're, they're young minds, they're sharp minds, and they are super impressed with technology and super impressed with the opportunity to be part of developing and applying that. So I think there's a lot of interest there in, uh, in this next generation of uh, students that are coming along and going out into the workforce and this sort of thing. It's really good to hear that I think some of these technical and technological innovations are helping, you know, capture the interest of young minds and get, um, get people interested in working, you know, either directly on the land or in some sort of uh, agricultural connected sector. So, um, Roger, thank you so much for your time and perspectives today. And um, I think this is a really exciting topic and one that'll be uh, really fascinating to watch in the years to come um, as these technologies get integrated into agricultural operations across the West. So thank you again for all of your insights. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Out West. Be sure to join us for our next episode of Governor Brown's Electric Vehicles Roadmap Series, when we will explore new technologies, research, and innovation in the EV sector. Finally, WGA would like to thank Ali Sagoon and Roger Hoy for sharing their expertise on EV adoption and infrastructure in the rural West. Happy trails, everyone.